Hey, it's Nate Parrish from Wedway Radio, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 23 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In fact, thank you for rejoining me after the couple-of-week break we had. I hope you had a great Christmas and are looking forward eagerly to 2013. This week, we finally get to begin our interview with Jennifer McGill. Jennifer got her start with Disney as one of the original cast members of the new Mickey Mouse Club, which first aired in 1989 and ran for seven seasons. She has some wonderful stories from her time on the show, and after it as she came back and worked for Disney again later. We had such a great time talking, and I trust you'll have just as great a time listening, that this episode is actually the first of three parts. In this one, hear how she got started working for Disney and being part of the new Mickey Mouse Club, the film she was almost cast in, how the Mickey Mouse Club prepared and shaped her as a high-caliber performer, what she did in Magic Music Days, and more information about what that is. The picture that started her career and her hobby as a seven-year-old that led to her casting. A couple of memorable in-park experiences from her days in the Mickey Mouse Club, including writing Tower of Terror with Christina Aguilera. What it was like being a student while working on the Mickey Mouse Club, and more. Now before making one announcement, let me tell you that I got a new computer earlier this month, and this was my first interview using the new computer. A lot was better about it, but there are still a couple of technical issues I'm working on resolving, so the audio is a bit off. There are a few places where my audio stepped on hers, and times where my voice sounds odd. Thankfully, hers is pretty good, though. I minimized it as much as I could, but it's still in there now and then. I apologize for that, and I'm working on resolving those issues for future interviews. Now then, I mentioned before the break that I have a new book that's just been published. If you missed getting it for Christmas, that's okay, though. It's perfect for starting your new year off right, too. It's called Once Upon Your Time, Seven Strategies for Gaining Control of Your Time Through a Tour of the Magic Kingdom. In it, I use Disneyland as an example, giving illustrations of key strategies to help you gain or regain control of your time. If you're a Disney fan, especially of Disneyland, and you're looking for some way to recapture time that seems to constantly slip away, you need this book. It's available as a paperback book, a Kindle book, and a PDF, depending on your preference. And through December 31st, 2012, it's on sale on Kindle for only 99 cents. Go to storiesofthemagic.com time to find out how to get your copy today. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and start this story. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. 
only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. So far, Stories of the Magic has ventured into the parks, animated series, and even the archives. On today's show, I'm very excited to take you to someplace new, a live-action series. Jennifer McGill became a Mouseketeer on the Disney Channel's The New Mickey Mouse Club at age 10. Jennifer's performed with diverse, talented individuals, including Christina Aguilera, Celine Dion, Ryan Gosling, Carmen, Donnie McClurkin, Boyz II Men, Alanis Morissette, Carrie Russell, Michael W. Smith, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, and Vanessa Williams over her 25-year career. Of course, when we're talking to Disney performers, it's hard to stay out of the parks, so we'll go there, too. After graduating from New York University's Tisch School of Arts, Jennifer's continued to sing all over the world on records, on television, in concert, and most dear to her, in church. I've been really looking forward to this interview, so Jennifer... Welcome to Stories of the Magic. Thank you so much, Randy. My pleasure. As we get started here, tell me a little bit about how you got started working for Disney and what you did for them. Well, I first, uh, like you said, I began when I was 10 years old singing professionally, and that was because uh, Blue Wave Productions hired me uh, to be a part of the cast of the new Mickey Mouse Club that was going to be the first show taped on new MGM Studios property as it was being still constructed uh, before its grand opening. And I was living in Denison, Texas, and I was a little singer who had a big passion for it at such a young age. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time at the right audition because there were thousands and thousands of children who auditioned. And at that age, honestly, not many of us were that much more advanced than the rest. It was really, I believe, looking back on that first set of episodes as an adult, it was really just what our casting director, Matt Casella, saw uh, in those few chosen to begin the pilot and the first season of the new Mickey Mouse Club. It was really just a combination of raw talent and personalities that reflected um, that different Disney attitude, you know, all the different shades of that. So I was really, really lucky, and that's the honest truth. I was just, <laughs> I was just a really <laughs> passionate kid that sang loud and high, and I was cute enough, and it just worked out, you know. 
so um, that's where I began. That's kind of how I landed my first gig at 10 years old. And I was originally going to be cast in a Disney movie about the original Mouseketeers, the original Mickey Mouse Club, called Why Because We Like You. Matt Casella was also the casting director for that. And um, when the writer's strike of the late 80s happened, after the final auditions in Hollywood, Matt moved some of our tapes to the final audition of the series. So Tiffany Hale and Chase Hampton, uh, the three of us were moved to that final audition uh, for the series. And so, again, it was just right place, right time, amazing opportunity. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, now, the, Mickey Mouse, the new Mickey Mouse Club ran for seven seasons, I think, right? Yes. And you were on for all seven, correct? I was. I was, uh, let, let me get this right. I was the only, I was the only Mouseketeer, I want to say, <laughs> maybe me and Lindsay. I can't even remember anymore. I think Lindsay and I came from the original audition. See, here's where, here's what, what I can't even remember in the little pictures in my head. I can't remember if Lindsay was on that that LA audition anymore but um either me or me and Lindsay were the only ones who were there from that from that first original movie audition all the way through without any breaks the last episode of the new Mickey Mouse Club wow yeah that's quite a feat <laughs> so that means you spent pretty much what I would be all of junior high and high school and even late elementary yeah on this series. Yes, I did. I began I began being involved in the audition process when I was in fifth grade. And before I graduate, right before I graduated from high school was when we finished the work on the show. So you pretty much literally grew up on the new Mickey Mouse Club. I did. I did. I grew up, uh, people refer to the new Mickey Mouse Club as a type of boot camp because you see just from the last uh, batch of cast members that they hired, um, the level that that show was capable of training young people um, in the entertainment business because we weren't just singers and we weren't just actors or dancers. We were all three. We didn't use cue cards. We went to school and we had a full-time job, all, you know, me since 10 years old. So um, it, it was definitely downloading the most amazing child entertainment software ever like i've <laughs> since i was 10 years old you can see disney standard right so <laughs> it's really a big thing in my life wow yeah i can't think of very many adults that could do that <laughs> you, you know you're you're more adaptable when you're younger so uh, it was a good time to, to get into that i think sounds like it now is the new Mickey Mouse Club, all that you did for Disney, or did you go on to do any other things after that? Well, after college in New York, I went back to Orlando to be close to my family. So Orlando, Florida became my home for many years, and it just so happened, again, I was in the right place at the right time. An extracurricular event of Disney, uh, made up of Disney cast members, they were very, very much in dire need of someone to sing Aida, the role of Aida, in um, one of their... Um, their benefit concerts, and they were so desperate because anyone who knows the musical Aida, I don't look like the girl who play, who would play Aida, and they really needed <laughs> someone to sing um, a big, big, big note. And so one of my best friends was involved in that production and uh, asked if I would come over and audition. And so 
I did get the part. Uh, it was just a last minute kind of, you know, emergency situation. And based on that performance, I was invited to audition uh, for some roles at Walt Disney World. And this would have this was the first time that I was actually, even though I had had a cast member ID and a silver pass during my teen years on the new Mickey Mouse Club, I had never worked um, as an actual cast member in the park. Uh, performing a rotation of shows the same every day for tourists, right? For all of the, the parks and all the patrons and all the family members. That was the first time being hired as an adult to perform in American Vibe, which was an acapella group housed in the American Adventure Pavilion. And we were the pre-show to the Voices of Liberty. And it was just an acapella group who sang uh, top 40s American written songs. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful group. And I eventually became a full-time cast member of that. And uh, that sprouted into joining the cast of Tarzan Rocks at Animal Kingdom. And I also became a clinician for Disney's Magic Magic Music Days, where I helped um, educate young high schoolers, sometimes middle schoolers, um, how to read music, how to interpret um, the dynamics of a score, how to record it how to uh, put choreography to it, all in a matter of just a few hours. And so I pretty much held them to the standards that I was held to when I was their age through those classes. So, um, And we sang many great events as well. Just, you know, you get hired um, as an individual singer as well for special corporate events and um, to sing on different tracks that get played just seasonally throughout the park. So it really opened up a whole new world of entertainment in in kind of a scene an environment that I used to work in as a child. So it was really, really amazing to be able to say that I had started my career at 10 in MGM Studios and I went on to Epcot Center and to Disney Magic Music Days and in Animal Kingdom. I performed on stage at the Magic Kingdom. I had also performed on stage back during the Mickey Mouse Club days at the castle uh, in Disneyland. So it was it's it's been a really amazing um Disney career. <laughs> wow, that that's quite a varied career even just there sure. at Walt Disney World and it sounds like there's quite a bit well, a fair amount of overlap except on the East Coast versus the West Coast with what you did and what I talked before to uh Laura Dickinson and Jill Burke about doing out here. Yes. Very interesting. Thank you for going through a little bit more detail about what the Magic Music Days and being a clinician for that is, too. I didn't really get a chance to go into that with Jill, so I appreciate hearing more of what was involved in that. Sure, yeah. It's it's a wonderful thing that, um, you know, it translates very well between um, uh, since – since 2000, I've been a private vocal coach, and um, it, they really go hand in hand. It's it's the same idea of this is the music at hand that we must learn. Let us all learn it. Okay, great. Now let's polish it. Okay, great. Now let's record it. Okay, great. Now let's get it ready for performance, for live performance, and then let's record that. It's almost exactly what I used to do on the Mickey Mouse Club, more of a speedy nature, <laughs> but it was wonderful to have those kids learn so quickly and to um, understand how you can produce something and polish it um, in Disney fashion um, with so little time if you have the right tools. And so it was it was a joy to, to help uh, give them even more tools. Absolutely. It sounds like it. And you know, who wouldn't want to learn 
in an environment like that to do something that's an entertaining and performing, I would think. So do you have an idea how long in total then that you worked for Disney? I know it was seven years on Mickey Mouse Club and then how long in the parks, et cetera. <laughs> I would say I probably got into uh, being the cast, a cast member again in 2003, and I believe the last time that I performed on property was probably 2008, you could say. You know, I mean, I, there was in between times because for the most part, after the new Mickey Mouse Club, I've been an independent contractor. And so um, I was full time at as American Vibe uh, cast member for about two years. But right before that and after that, I have done more work in the parks, but it just hasn't been full time. So um, but, but you could say between 2003 and 2008, I did get to perform on property or my voice was um, in recorded fashion played somewhere on property. Okay. Do you know if they're still using any of those recordings that you're on now or have they all cycled out? I believe they've all cycled out, but you just never know. Um, you know, you can sing something for um, Downtown Disney's July 4th Spectacular one year and they could bring it back in 10 years. I have no idea. They don't need to uh, get, get your permission. You know, it's kind of like you do this work and it's really fun and then they just get to, to have it, you know, for all time. And so... Uh, we, we don't, we're not notified necessarily if, if we're uh, what we call a session singer, um, on a part, then it just is what it is. And we've, we've given that work to the company and they can use it however they want to. I, I personally love doing session work. That's a lot of what my independent contractor, uh, duties have been throughout the years, singing on other people's albums, um, and records. So it's been, um, no less of a joy to do it for the Walt Disney Company. Okay. Uh, has there been a time where you've been walking through the park or downtown Disney or whatever, uh, back more in the time where you were doing it more regularly, and something came on that you had done recording for? Like, that's me. I, I hear I hear me in that group or whatever. I did go uh, to the downtown Disney uh, event that year that I did sing. Um, I believe it was for a July 4th special, and I did sit there and listen to it, like, just as one of the crowd with some of my friends. And so that was really cool. And back in the day, you know, technology on your phones and stuff, we, we couldn't really hear that stuff clearly. So I probably tried to record it uh, like on video or something just to have it. And it was probably so loud and spectacular in the, in the speakers in the park that it just, did, I just didn't get a good recording of it. So, but I had fun trying. And uh, I would say besides that, the other big memorable thing from even back in the day on the new Mickey Mouse Club, when I was in like maybe eighth grade, uh, I was, I guess, about 14. They had taken um, our photo shoot for the up and coming year, the up and coming season of episodes, and they had made life size photo cutouts of some of us and put us out in the park across the sidewalk now from where Toy Story is in the Disney Hollywood Studios. And so um, they had a cardboard cutout of some of us, and I was there in my little outfit, you know, like hanging out as a cardboard cut, as not a cardboard cutout, but a photo, you know, whatever they make it out of, a cutout. And uh, I dressed up in the same outfit one day, and my mother and I, we went out there and took a photo shoot with me and myself in the same outfit. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> That's great. I, I can picture that. That's funny. And of course, it raises eyebrows because you go out there during park hours, and we had our, our IDs and our silver pass, and we'd go out there to get a milkshake or to go um, test out 
the Tower of Terror when it was new. I remember I went over there with Christina Aguilera, and she was in front of me in line. We were It was just cast member testing. And I thought to myself, like, this little bitty thing, is she even going to be able to get on the ride? I don't even know if she's going to be allowed, you know, because she was so tiny. She was only maybe 12 or 13, but I think she was 12 because she was so little. Um, but yeah, it's just, we would just go out in the park and we would just be kids, but every other time we would draw a lot of attention if anyone in the park recognized us from the show, you know, so never a dull moment. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, what did you think of Tower of Terror when you got to ride it that first time? (laughs) I loved it. And it's so cool. I've been on that ride. Randy, seriously, I have probably ridden that ride more than any other one, I think, on Disney property. Maybe besides attending Food Rocks back in the day when it was when it was happening, because I love that show. But me and um, one of my best friends, Rusty, uh, we were both uh, park employees for um, around the same time, and so we would go just ride it over and over and over again and try to find new ways. Uh, to entertain ourselves on the ride because at the time he was he was way bigger than me and so he would try to pooch out his stomach as far as he could so that the 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 the, the protector you know like your the bar that keeps you from falling out of the the, the ride um, was really loose on me <laughs> so basically <laughs> levitating in the back row and I'd be like yeah. I would just we would just figure out how we could make that ride more entertaining. We'd hold a penny in our hand and watch it levitate as we dropped. I mean, we rode that ride so many times and watched the videos that go with it so many times because I love thrill rides and really that was one of the only ones of that nature there at the time when I was in high school, you know. So it was definitely and it was right in my backyard basically. So that was definitely my favorite ride when I was working as a mouseketeer. Nice. That's very cool. <laughs> Since you are a vocalist, can I share an interesting little bit of trivia with you about Tower of Terror? Oh, sure. When they first were constructing it and you know in the boiler room they've got all of those loud sounds with everything that's going on uh and of course, those are all tracks that they lay in there for to you know make consistent sounds and everything. And they discovered a small problem when it came to safety, and that was that you couldn't hear each other. You know, the room, in order to be authentic, was so loud that cast members couldn't hear each other, which could be a safety issue. And so, some audio engineer, somebody came up with this brilliant idea, and they actually went through all of those tracks and they stripped out the frequency range of the human voice. So it still sounds the same. You don't notice that frequency range missing. But because it's not there, the background noise isn't stomping on the human voice range. So you can actually talk to each other in a normal tone of voice and be heard, even though it's so loud around you. Look how smart they are. I'm not surprised. Isn't that brilliant? And and I I can't wait to tell all of my friends that. <laughs> yeah, I figured you'd be one of those people that would particularly appreciate that kind of little bit of information. Definitely appreciate safety, so I'm really glad they figured that out because I never noticed. Uh, I I love the ambiance, especially like I'm I'm one of those people who um, would love 
would love to explore the lobby of the of the Tower of Terror, you know, beyond the the gates and the ropes and stuff. I would love to just go like look at all of it because basically you have a team of designers who made this this lobby and such as if people have left it this way, like left the building abruptly. And I just want to go through that whole place and see like all the faux dust covered props and, you know, the pages and what the writing has on it. Or if someone maybe left a lollipop on the mantle or what's in the fireplace or you know, any, like anything. I just would love to, to just comb through that lobby because I love that kind of design, you know, slightly creepy. <laughs> Because you you still have to go all the way through the design in a behavioral um, what if circumstance. Like, all right, well, what if someone was sitting here in the lobby? Would they have a pipe? Would they have coffee? You know, would they have their spectacles? You know, back in the day when when this, this, you know, the decade that the scene was being created for. And so I love that stuff. And so I think that's why I particularly loved Tower of Terror, um, just the ambiance and the design of it to begin with, as well as, of course, the thrill ride part of it, um, just because I, I love that kind of stuff. So the fact that they, you know, even worked on the sound and made it safe, as well as uh, very thrilling um, and detail specific. I love that stuff. So I'm happy to know that. Thank you, Randy. <laughs> You're welcome, Jennifer. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So you told me about doing the audition for the Mickey Mouse Club and just kind of being in the right place at the right time. Did you have any thought up to that point of, well, you know, I kind of like to work for Disney or anything like that, or was it just, hey, here's an audition and I can go on? I did not have any specific thoughts about working for Disney. Uh, My family, um, we were were in a very small town, and um, we were a very humble family, and we had never gone to Disney World, so there wasn't a lot of reference for me. I had watched Disney cartoons, but I had never really seen the, the original Mickey Mouse Club or the Mickey Mouse Club from the 70s. All I remember is that when I was around seven years old, I saw the Miss Texas pageant, and the winner of that year sang a big belting number, you know, a loud singing number called Stand By Your Man. And she won the crown, and I said, Mom, I want to win a crown too. So we went to my dance teacher, and and my mother said, She'd like to enter a contest, like a talent contest, where you win crowns. And my my dance teacher said, no problem. I will I will put her in a contest. I'll teach her a dance number for the talent, and I'll teach her how to model. We'll get her a dress. It'll be fine. And my mom said, okay, great, but she's going to sing a song instead. And my dance teacher was like, okay, okay, you know, because seven-year-olds didn't necessarily have a competitive voice. You know, it's it's not um, every seven-year-old that has that. And my dance teacher had no knowledge that I had been singing on pitch since I was two. You know, my mother had these little tape recordings of me singing like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and stuff like that. And and when we would listen to them in later years, I would say I was on pitch. I was totally on pitch and I knew the words and everything, you know. But in my house, our, our whole family was very musical. So we didn't know that that was necessarily um, an advanced state for a seven-year-old to be at. So I entered this little contest at seven years old, and I sang, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, and I won that little talent competition. I won my first little crown at seven years old, and I have a picture of it, and I like to say that that is the picture that basically is the beginning of my career, because from that moment, I just wanted to win more crowns. And so I would, I remember, I probably entered 50 contests um, over the next three years. I feel like we 
my mother and I, it became our hobby. This was way before karaoke uh, was common. You'd have to order away for eight tracks in the key that you wanted. You know, you'd have to choose from a catalog. Um, this was all paper, all eight track. You know, you had to get it right the first time or you didn't have the right song in the mail. Right. So um you really had to plan ahead. And my mother would make my costumes. And this just became the thing that we did on the weekends. And I'm not kidding. I won every talent competition I was in except for two, I think, over the period of three years that I was in them. So it's I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you that in my limited perspective as a young person, I was a conqueror. You know, I was doing what I loved, not what I not what I was told to do. You know, my mother was not pushing me into the business. I just remember it being fun. It was something that I was good at, something I enjoyed. I loved the thrill of, uh, of, of competition and singing a big song and then, you know, reaping some sort of reward after, you know, it was really like a strategy. It was my game, you know, and, um, around, around the age of nine, I really cleaned up at this one, uh, competition and actually, Funny side story that I'll tell in a minute. I cleaned up at this one competition. I guess it was my last pageant because I met my future agent. Um, her name is Julie Erickson, and we're still Facebook friends. And she, on a handshake, uh, wanted to represent me. She was one of the judges um, in one of the children's divisions, and she had noticed me in the talent competition. And so the first audition she got me was for the Mickey Mouse Club. It was just the first thing that came around every time was what I dove into and succeeded in, you know. So I never really had a question of my path as an entertainer because I felt like it started so early and I loved it so much and that love never died. So I was just, as I've said, so lucky to have graduated so quickly into such a prestigious and um, extremely <laughs> uh, huge company as Walt Disney World. The standards of Disney, um, the, the materials, the tools, the way they equipped their entertainers, all of the people who helped us as young children become uh, the best and do the best job that we could, they, uh, they are why I'm still in the business. They are why I still continue to uh, get better and not just settle for where I am, um, and to enjoy the art of entertaining versus uh, the art of celebrity, you know? Sure, yeah, that makes complete sense, definitely. Wow, way to go with that agent on that first audition. <laughs> that pretty much set the standard pretty high, I think. It was amazing. Yeah, she, on a handshake, she just said, okay, here's your first audition. And she she got me to Matt Casella. And then, and really past her getting me into that audition, Matt really had a vision um, I remember when I stepped into, um, it was, I think, the Galleria in Dallas. It was the Galleria Mall. And I probably had never been to this mall, and it had a skating rink, and I was just really excited about the skating rink, you know, because I'm, I'm nine or ten. And I, I had just gotten my braces off. And so uh, my mother and I were preparing outside. We had an appointment. Since I had an agent, I did have an appointment, and we were, you know, primping my hair, and I was warming up. And we were just waiting outside, waiting for my appointment because we were early because we had to drive about two hours from our hometown to get to the mall. And Matt Casella heard me outside. He stuck his head out the door 
and he, you know, identified me and he said, well, do you want to come on in? So he brought me in early and I, I did my thing. I sang and I danced and I probably had a conversation with him. And then I just, you know, scrambled out to go ice skating and Matt Casella found us at the skating rink, actually, you know, pursued us and found us on that property and said, will you please come back tomorrow so that she can be put on videotape and read some sides, read some scripts. So it was really his vision and his, his quick uh, reaction um, that, that was so amazing on top of how Julie decided to take a handshake and, and represent me as well. So, I mean, it wasn't just my, my talent because, like, like I said earlier, everything was raw. I was just doing what I loved and what my mother and I did as a pastime. It just so happened that I was good enough at it and that I was a super cute kid and that Matt and Julie and my mother believed in it so much to keep bringing me back to the next audition, you know. So um, it was definitely a group effort. Do you want to hear my side story about one of my last talent competitions? Yes, please, sure. Now, he I don't think he likes it when I tell this story, so maybe you'll have him on the show someday uh, so he can re- have a rebuttal. But this is how I remember it. When I was nine, I was going to one of my last talent competitions before the Mickey Mouse Club audition. I don't even know if I had uh, met Julie Erickson, my agent, or even been cast in an appointment at the gallery mall yet. But I went to Pampa, Texas with my family, my mother, my father, and my brother. All four of us were in the car. And on the way there on July 2nd, I turned 10. We stopped at a, a convenience store, and I picked out a teddy bear, and I think I had a cupcake in the car. But turning 10 on the way to this competition put me in a new age category of the competition where I was then competing with Chase Hampton, who is another original Mouseketeer, I mean, from from the new Mickey Mouse Club from the 1990s. And uh, he was also in the the California audition for the movie with me. But that was all after this. I met him at this Pampa competition, Pampa, Texas, and he was one of the oldest in the age group. And I was the very youngest, having just turned 10. I won that competition. (laughs) (laughs) And... He was psyching me out the whole time, and I think he tells it like I was psyching him out. But honestly, Randy, I don't think I even knew what that word meant. I don't even know if I could have done that. But he he was a dancer as well, and I was all the different songs that I did. They were all singing only, really. And um, and Chase was at that age way better. He was I've seen footage uh, as an adult, and he was killing it, you know. And I was just singing really loud, right? But that, that was my one thing that I was doing. But <laughs> I remember he was like, wow, I'm really glad that I'm not singing in my in my final competition performance because those microphones, they they sound like they're cutting in and out. And, <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's kind of a mean kid. And then I meet him and now we're great friends because, you know, we were just all kids doing our thing back then. But that's my first memory of Chase Hampton is, A, that he was, you know, he was playing a big game, but B, I beat him. <laughs> And and then, of course, you know, then we went on the audition for the Mickey Mouse Club. We met again, and then we were in the original cast, and he went out to do the party, and then he came back and was uh, one of the co-hosts in the final season seven. So, I mean, and we are friends today. Like, he's a dear, dear man, and I love him very much. So um, it's been a really – it's just been a really funny story to tell because I just think he completely disagrees with me, and it just makes me laugh. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's good. I love that story. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely have to have him on and get his side of that. Yeah, it'll, it'll get his feathers ruffled. It makes me laugh. But he's like my brother, obviously. You know, he can't get too mad at me for telling my little my little truth from when I just turned 10. But I just thought that was hilarious. I turned 10, and then I completely take over. Again, Randy, it's like, that's just what I did. I, I came and I conquered, right? Because even today, the style of singing that I do, it is more aggressive, and I don't come to conquer anymore. I don't get out there to be better than anybody else. But at such a young age, you know, it's like any sport. That was my sport, you know, and I went out there to win. <laughs> so um, definitely got it out of my system back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that leads me to an interesting little side question. At least I hope it's going to be an interesting question. Uh, you said that you used to go out and do that, and you don't have that same kind of going out to conquer and be the best uh, all the time anymore. What changed from then to now? Did you just get it out of your system, or did something else change? I think that, uh, like I said, like any sport, when you show up at a sports event to win, right, that's the object of the sports event to win. But I'm not in competitions anymore, you know. I mean, I go to auditions, and I, I coach people to go to auditions, and I say, you are not in competition with anybody else. You're in competition with the best that you can do. If you're not giving your best, then, you know, you're not doing your best because the game is different now. You know, as an adult, I believe, and this is just how I've developed over time, I believe that it's it's useless to worry about stuff that I have no control over. I have no control over how other people use their talents, how they behave, what they bring to the table, um, how they spend their time cultivating their gifts or not, you know, or, or tearing other people down for that matter. So for me, what is useful and what does make entertainment still such a pleasure to be a part of these days and what makes me the most happy is to keep myself in check, make sure I'm, I've warmed up, make sure I love what I'm doing, make sure I know that it's the best that I can do, that I'm not just phoning something in. And if I make sure that I've brought all that I can to a project, or an audition, um, and keep the competition idea out of it when it's inappropriate, I actually have a very full experience, even if I don't get a part. Because if, if you look at it from, um, I mean, any entertainer will tell you that even if you have a full-time job, in the entertainment world, you know, the show always ends. There's always going to be a time of transition, no matter what age you are. And you've interviewed people who are extremely, they're, they're legends in the Disney community, um, but there's always that next job after, you know, maybe the one that made them a legend. There's always a, a next thing that you go on and do, and it's not necessarily because you have to. Sometimes it's like, oh, this, this next project came up, and it's wonderful, and I want to, right? It's not necessarily a tragedy to move on to another job, but it's an inevitable idea that we have to prepare for something new and we have to get better and we have to stay strong. So for me, there's really no other option anymore that's healthy other than uh, the mentality and the behavior that I just described to you in my business. That makes sense. That's a great perspective. And the, the maturity that came with that perspective or that brought that perspective is, I think, really important for people to, to remember. Because well, even if you're not an entertainer, we all have those periods of transition, I think. And you know, we all have that opportunity to go out and do our best every day and not necessarily make it a competition. So having the entertainer perspective coming into that approach, I think is a really healthy one and a really valuable one for people in entertainment or not to bear in mind. Thank 
you. And, and I did have to fight for it. You know, everyone has their bad days and, and their bad years. You know, the, the reason why I believe so strongly in this is because I, I've done it other ways, you know. And I just know that if you do put your energy and your effort into being prepared, into being equipped, into developing and never assuming that you have the upper hand, but that you've done everything that you possibly can, of course, to be the best that you can be, you're already competitive. You know what I'm saying? You're, the, the competition's already there. And so don't treat it like a competition, but just, oh, well, I'm just going to do what I do. Then you, that's your reputation right there. And that's what I've, you know, strived for all this, all these years to really have a, a positive yet strong reputation in the business. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Now I, I'm curious whether this is going to be a difficult question to answer from the, the Mickey Mouse Club perspective. Uh, so you can take, this from then or when you were working in the parks, or you can even answer in both parts. But when was the first time you remember thinking, you know, I'm doing something really special. This is a really cool thing that I'm doing. I remember when I was just being a, a small kid in my hometown and then, you know, looking back on that time, even just a few years after and thinking, here I am in this new town with my family but when when I go to this place to go to school and, and do this thing called work that didn't really feel like work, there were people all around me paying attention to me. The faculty, you know, the staff, people educating me, putting makeup on me, dressing me, you know, lighting me, uh, making sure I know my lines, as well as the people... I guess I can describe it. When one was on stage, uh, depend, it doesn't matter what soundstage we were using because we did actually use soundstage one, two, and three uh, for certain segments of taping for the Mickey Mouse Club. So regardless of what stage you were standing on, above you is almost like a glass hallway. And it used to be a part of the backstage tour where visitors could walk through the hallway and those windows of glass and look down into the sound stages as well as look through a big window into our recording studios where we would do all of our music. We had one recording studio um, that I actually had the pleasure of visiting earlier this year. Again, in May, it was, it's like, it was like a Foley stage. It was originally uh, built so that it could provide sound effects like different textures of ground you could walk on. Like they had all these covered floorings that if you opened the lids, it would be gravel or sand, you know, and, and people can record stepping on those different grounds. And you can overlay that, of course, into, into films at the time and stuff, whatever they needed. Um, but we never really used it for that. I think we did a few tap dance numbers in there. But regardless, if we were standing in there, you know, recording tap sounds or at the microphone singing a song, there was a constant stream of visitors who would stop and look at us and the tour guide would speak with them and then they'd look at us some more and sometimes we would wave and then they would walk on. You know, they'd take their pictures and this is people of all ages, of course, you know, all sorts of people from when the park opened all through my senior year in high school. I always had an audience unless I was home, right? So, I mean, there was really nothing that was the same about my life before the Mickey Mouse Club and after, except that I was still <laughs> a drama queen and always performing, even if no one was around. But I was being paid so much attention, you know, and all of us collectively were just the center of this world, this new world at MM Studios. 
so I, I just feel like that was really, it was just so impactful. And you don't really, recover is not the right word. You never really experience that again. Uh, the ones that have gone on to be more famous and the ones that have, you know, more of the quote unquote normal life as well that maybe don't get on stage in front of big audiences anymore um, in any capacity, that particular combination of being a kid, working with adults, working with children, going to school, getting projects done, but then also having a constant revolving audience at all times watching you on the stages and in the studios. I don't really know of any other group of children who had to go through that. And so it's definitely, you know, there's only about 40 of us, if that, you know, in all the world that did that. And so I call it the fishbowl experience. (laughs) (laughs) Was it difficult to transition from the end of that into a time where you weren't constantly surrounded by that attention? Not for me. It was not difficult to transition into young adulthood, I guess, because I had a lot of um, forward thinking at the time when we found out that season seven was our last season. I had already been accepted into New York University's Tisch School of the Arts um, early decision. And so as a junior in high school, I already knew uh, what my future could be. And so I had a whole new world to look forward to. Honestly, I had already chosen New York University. I knew that that's where I wanted to go because I really wanted to explore how Broadway, how that production goes. You know, I'd been on this whole television thing basically for for over half my life. I felt like um, just this this performance, live television, just all, you know, all of that kind of stage to TV stuff. And I really wanted to see what musical theater, live theater, and and the technique that goes with that really was all about, and just be able to study. This was the first time I was going to be able to just go to school since I was nine years old. So I was really looking forward to actually the downsizing of my responsibilities going to New York University for four years. Sure. It was it was completely different. You know, it's a lot of work, um, but it was definitely different because I didn't have, you, you know, the constant revolving audience. My mother always said that I would go through about a two-week mourning period after the wrap of each season. It was kind of my personal transition time. And then I'd be fine. And I really feel that I've just kind of kept that consistent adaptability and flexibility in my life all of these years, um, probably because of that time of transition. I moved from Texas to Florida. My whole family, you know, all four of us, we were, we moved together. We set up a whole new life in Orlando, Florida. um, And then our schedules would always change, you know, I would be working and then, and then I wouldn't be. And then there'd be, maybe we'd lose a few Mouseketeers, we'd gain a few Mouseketeers and we'd start all over again. And then we would wrap that season. And then I'd go back to to regular school and go to school all day, like other kids did and try to be in a musical or try to be in the Shakespeare competition, you know, and try to do a science project. And then I'd go back and work and go to school again with some new people and some old cast members and, then we'd rap again. I mean, it was constantly changing. I remember my junior year in high school, it, I guess it's established in general as the hardest, studious year of everyone's high school career because of you're studying for all the tests that are coming up and you're trying to get your GPA up for college. And I remember I had so much work on my plate 
I didn't dress up at all because everyone had seen me in ninth and tenth grade with all my Mickey Mouse Club clothes because they let you, you know, buy them for really inexpensive, kind of like a garage sale. And so you you wear all your amazing outfits from the show, or at least I did, to school. And then junior year, I was just in basic T-shirt and jeans, probably some Converse, long hair. I was a little a little bit of a hippie <laughs> and I had my backpack, right? And then so I'd be in my books and then I would leave on Thursday night fly out to um, a military base, go do, you know, a piece of our USO tour in conjunction with promoting the MMC album. I'd go sing Hanging On For Dear Life and dance around and do these songs and then fly back. Like, we were in Scotland and then England. Iceland was kind of the coolest thing ever and, and Germany. And then I'd fly back on the red eye, get my report done, and a limo would take me with a McMuffin in my hand Monday morning to high school where I'd turn in my paper and I'd start the week all over again. Crazy schedule. <laughs> so, yeah. College was kind of easier <laughs> in one way. It was a relief, you know. People still knew who I was, but thankfully, really, I've always been blessed with friends who, no matter how we first met, whether they were fans in the beginning or it wasn't a big deal or, or anywhere in between that, all of my friends who have stayed very close with me through the years have always from time to time said, I forget that you're Jennifer McGill. I forget. I just see you as Jen or whatever. And I love it that regardless of maybe that rotating audience during the time that that show was ultimately popular, regardless of who was watching me in real life, not at MGM Studios, but just on the street or in my classroom, I didn't really have um, a paranoia about it whatsoever. I took it in stride and I just hung out with who I liked and it, it really all just worked out. So I just really think I was, I was really okay with transition. I, I've really been blessed. <laughs> I still love to travel and, and work. Uh, most of my vacations are actually jobs. This is Rick Moyer. And this is Amy Moyer. And we are the hosts of Taken With You. The weekly podcast where we discuss life at the geeky Moyer's home. And then we talk about our faith and how it relates to the world around us. Very, very positive podcast. And we think you really enjoy it. And I love Star Trek and heavy metal music. And I like Star Trek. Kinda. And heavy metal music. And I hate heavy metal music. <laughs> Want to hear more of our banter? You can by listening to our podcast. Where can they find it? You can find it at TakeHimWithYou.com or iTunes. That's right, iTunes. 
That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Jennifer McGill for being my guest, and to you for listening. Be sure to come back next week for part two. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity, and you'd like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY, anytime, 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let me know and we'll talk. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call that listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear Stories of the Magic, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store. Download it. It's free and takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box and enter Magic Stories to get automatically entered to win $100. The latest episode of the show will be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing shows, too. Always available to you on demand, no syncing. It's Stitcher Smart Radio. Don't forget to enter promo code MAGICSTORIES, all one word, when you register. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes. Those ratings help make the podcast more visible there, so it's easier for people to find. Leaving a rating and a review will only take a couple of minutes, and I'd be very grateful to you. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google Plus. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic. This week's episode has been brought to you by Leaving Conformity Coaching. Walt Disney said, Disneyland is like Alice stepping through the looking glass. To step through the portals of Disneyland will be like entering another world. Entering Disneyland is like stepping into another world full of magic, wonder, and impossible dreams that come true. In the same way, working with me as your coach will enable you to step into a life unlike anything you may have thought possible. One that is full of promise, joy, and passion. Not always easy, but always an adventure. To find out more about Leaving Conformity Coaching and how I can help you, access some free resources and read my blog, visit leavingconformitycoaching.com stories. Finally, I'd like to close with a reminder about my new book, Once Upon Your Time, Seven Strategies for Gaining Control of Your Time Through a Tour of the Magic Kingdom. In this busy time of year and looking ahead to 2013, this short book may be the tool you need to make 2013 your best year ever. And through December 31st, 2012, you can get it on Kindle for only 99 cents. That's an offer that's hard to pass up, so go to storiesofthemagic.com time to find out how to get your copy today. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, and this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. 
If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.